Good afternoon to those of you that have still stayed. Thank you very much. It's a real treat to be able to talk about nutrition and nutrition support to inflammatory bowel disease docs because this is something that I feel passionate about. I've been doing nutrition support my entire career, but who do I take care of? I take care of a lot of patients with IBD, both clinically and with nutrition support. So in this time period, I'm going to, no disclosures, we're going to talk about understanding why it's important to identify and treat malnutrition, talk about nutritional deficiencies in patients with IBD. Oops. And look at complementary medicines that your patients may be taking because if you don't ask, they won't tell. Now, nutrition matters to your patients' lives as well as your hospital's bottom line, believe it or not. Hospital administrators are going to be coming to you and saying, why aren't we coding these things right? Let me look at this for a moment. This is an actual case from our hospital and why it's important to recognize and code malnutrition. If you look at the uh, first case here with $11,000 reimbursement for a patient that's gotten a small bowel resection, no coding for malnutrition was done. However, a registered dietitian that was working on our team did code this patient as severe malnutrition. We missed an opportunity to get the DRG payment for $23,000 more. That increases the length of stay that you're allowed, the relative weight, the morbidity, mortality risk, as well as uh, the severity index. So this is something that you've got to really think about when you're taking care of these patients. So the first goal that I want to share with you is really identifying those patients at risk for malnutrition and what deficiencies should you really be looking for. Physical exam. Our electronic medical records are really good at doing this. Height and weight. And I'm not talking about the height that you've got on your license that's from 20 years ago, because as we start getting older, we all start shrinking. A lot of your patients may have osteoporosis, so what they're actually telling you is what they might have been 20 years ago. Try measuring the patients, as well as getting a weight. Body mass index is something that I look at a lot, and if you're a pediatrician, pediatric gastroenterologist, you probably are looking at the height and weight growth curves of these patients and seeing if they're growing normally, and if not, you need to really take care of these patients in terms of nutrition support early. If you're a pediatric person, again, tanner staging in children is important. Are they meeting the goals that they should be? Nutrition assessment isn't all that hard. There are several ways to look at this. The subjective global assessment has been done since the mid-1980s and is something that's very easy that I'll share with you in a moment. Or the malnutrition universal screening tool is something that's also done, and you can have your patients do this, as I'll show you. So the subjective global assessment, there are several things that we look at, five components of the medical and nutrition history, and three components for physical exam. 
Weight loss is really one of the key things. Not only now, but what, is, what has happened over the past six months? Nutrition intake, what's different than what's been going on the last month, last six months? GI symptoms, are all good at taking that history. Their functional status, are they able to do what they want to do? Metabolic stress, and by stress, I'm not talking about your mother-in-law coming over for Christmas dinner. Physical exam, muscle loss. We can look at this very quickly if we do a physical exam on our patients, as well as look at fat depletion and edema. If your patient has significant edema, that may also change what that body weight is. So are we looking at a patient that has significant antisarca and may have liver disease in addition, and they may have 40 pounds of fluid on? So that impacts how things are. So taking that into consideration. With this, you can rate patients very quickly as well-nourished, moderately malnourished, or severely malnourished. The MUST, or Malnutrition Universal Screening Tool, is something that uh, was looked at a couple years ago in IBD patients and self-administering this in the office. 96% of these patients thought it was very easy or easy to understand and complete. And certainly, if you're running behind, your patients can fill this out for you, and you can have a real rough idea of what's going on. And this correlates very well with what we find when we actually do a true nutrition assessment. So it may be worth having your patients do this. The reference is there, and you may want to incorporate this with your patients. Lots of different risk factors in IBD for malnutrition. Certainly, there's the chronicity of the disease, the severity of the disease, catabolic state if they have significant inflammation. Anytime there are problems with digestion, there may be significant problems with absorption. It's a one-two. If you don't digest well, you're not going to absorb well. For patients with short bowel patient, uh, disease, we have patients that have less surface area to absorb. Very important concept because if you don't have the surface area to absorb, you're going to have problems keeping up with your nutrition. Fistulas, where is that fistula? Is it a high output fistula, a low output fistula? Are you able to put a feeding tube beyond it or do you have to pouch it? Do you have to keep the patient NPO? Does the patient have to be on parental nutrition? All significant issues that you have to deal with. Patients that come in with IBD may have prolonged hospitalizations, and what do we do for them? First thing we do is we make them NPO. So you starve them again and again because you have to do different testing, or you may give them that beloved go lightly and prep them for a colonoscopy or whatever for the next day to see what their disease is really like. Sometimes you will do an unprepped exam. Impaired intake. We'll talk about that. But for every day that you keep somebody NPO in the hospital, and it doesn't matter if it's IBD or whatever, it takes three days for them to recover from that. Impaired intake can involve anorexia. That may be due to medications, may be due to underlying disease, nausea and vomiting. Do they have bowel obstruction? Abdominal pain. If you've got significant abdominal pain, you don't want to necessarily be eating. Patient preferences, restrictive diets. If you don't ask what the patient is eating, you're not going to find out. 
And then what do we suggest to these patients? Doc, what can I eat? Well, when they come into the hospital, the first thing you always do is usually make them NPO. But are there other things that we can do for them? Can we give them liquid diets? Can we give them enteral nutrition? Are there other ways that we can help them not be so malnourished? So let's look at the major nutritional deficiencies. Iron or anemia in general. Anemia is actually the most common extra-intestinal manifestation uh, when it comes to inflammatory bowel disease. So you may have iron deficiency or it may be anemia of chronic disease. They may be mixed. Vitamin B12, is this an intake problem or is this an absorption problem because of altered anatomy? So many of our IBD patients have had one or more surgeries, so you have to think about what is available to be able to do the uh, digesting and absorbing. Folate, intake versus anatomy or medications. Lots of different medications upset folate, and we'll come back to that. Zinc and selenium correlate with severity of disease due to diarrhea. And again, watch for the patient that's got the restrictive diet. This slide basically shows all the different sites of absorption, just to give you a rough idea. A wonderful British physio physiologist figured out that the absorptive capacity of the gut is like a doubles tennis court. But when I start seeing the patients, they've already been whittled on by their friendly neighborhood surgeon, so we have less surface area to be dealing with. So in grade school and beyond, you've been taught different places things get absorbed. Vitamin B12 and bile salts, probably the one exam question that's always asked. Terminal ileum. But if you have ileal disease or you've had resections, vitamin B12 or bile salts may be a significant issue. Iron deficiency anemia is very common. 30% to 90% in different series. Things like ferric maltose may be better tolerated than some of the other compounds with less side effects, but we know that the majority of our patients do not tolerate oral iron well, and there may be other problems with iron that deal with our inflammation. Ferric maltose is also not available currently in the U.S. It's undergoing uh, FDA trials. We have high CRP. And in those patients, uh, decreased hemoglobin response compared to IV administration. So I think that for those patients that we deal with that have significant iron deficiency, we should be going to iron infusions sooner rather than later. At this meeting, there have been uh, multiple vendors talking to you about uh, the various benefits of their particular products, but the idea is give it to them, give it to them IV, and find out what your payers will actually pay for, because that's where we are with a lot of different options that we do for IBD. <clears throat> with B12 deficiency, the etiologies can be certainly poor intake, ileal disease, certainly the one key place for Crohn's disease starting is in the terminal ileum, but did you know just a resection of 20 centimeters can decrease your ability to significantly absorb vitamin B12 in that area. 
fistulas, you may be bypassing that area and not being able to absorb. Bacterial overgrowth may decrease that uh, ability to uh, absorb in addition. Increased requirements or protein losing neuropathy, hepatic dysfunction, all different things that might uh, be important in your B vitamin B12. We all may test vitamin B12, but how many actually test things like MMA, methylmalonic acid, or homocysteine? Those are very, very important, and I would encourage you that if you're going to check B12 levels, marry it with something else so you know that that level is accurate. Because that B12 level may be coming down over time, and the body may not see enough active vitamin B12 to do really what it needs to do. Folic acid, or vitamin B9, Crohn's disease more so than ulcerative colitis, and the incidence in Crohn's disease can be very, very high, up to 80%. And this can be seen with poor intake, active disease, and a variety of medications that we use commonly, like the sulfa antibiotics, sulfasalazine that we still use a fair amount of, methotrexate, all things that you need to be supplementing additional folic acid with. What about other vitamin deficiencies? Fat-soluble vitamins, A, D, E, and K. Anything that can disrupt digestion can lead to poor absorption. So you have to think of those, that if they're not, if their intake is poor, then we may have significant deficits in these areas. Fats may be more difficult to absorb, and we're usually very, very efficient at breaking down those fats and absorbing them, but once you start taking out different parts of the GI tract surgically, then you're going to have less surface area to actually work with that. And a lot of these are normally stored in either fat or the liver, so these things we need to be looking at. So your patients that are already malnourished may be at significant risk for fat-soluble vitamin deficiencies. Some of the quick key points for the different vitamins. Vitamin A, we need that for our eyes as well as tissue growth, healing. And deficiencies might include things like night blindness, keratomalacia, or pitot spots. In ancient Egypt, this was treated by eating liver. Vitamin A is stored only in the liver, and we see a lot of this in Crohn's disease more so than ulcerative colitis. And the serum levels may not be uh, good predictors here. So if you have a patient that you're seeing with Crohn's disease that's very underweight, undernourished, low fat stores, lower BMI, that may be the patient to be screening them for vitamin A deficiency. Vitamin D is very common in the population. Uh, the only medication that I started taking when I moved from beautiful, sunny Richmond, Virginia to uh, Cleveland was vitamin D. So, lower levels may also be associated with disease severity. If you screen these patients, you're going to be deficient to under 20 uh, nanograms per ml. Insufficiency is 20 to 30. You want to really get your patients well over that 30 mark, trying to decrease the risk of bone disease, etc. In the <clears throat> Nurses Health Study, they found that the highest vitamin D levels had a lower risk of Crohn's disease, and that was work by one of our uh, wonderful moderators. 
And in a study looking at can you use vitamin D therapeutically, they gave 1,200 international units of vitamin D3 for 12 months. This was a placebo-controlled trial. And this happened to decrease relapse rates in Crohn's disease from 29% to 13%. And I really think that further uh, trials are really warranted on this. Anything that we can do to try and keep disease at bay once you have these patients in remission is probably very useful. The key points for vitamin K, vitamin K, as you may recall, the K is German for coagulation. We need this not only for blood coagulation, but vitamin K is important in bone structure and proteins. It's normally produced in our large intestine. However, what happens if you're one of those IBD patients that has lost your colon? So dietary deficiency is very rare unless it's heavily damaged, you can't absorb the molecule, or as you've seen, we nuke a lot of patients on a daily basis with antibiotics so that antibiotics um, are very key in this. The early days of um, IV cephalosporins, we saw a lot of vitamin K deficiency from uh, knocking off a lot of bacteria in patients that were given long-term um, antibiotics. The symptoms may include heavy menstrual bleeding, anemia, bruising, bleeding, etc. This has been reported in both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, and it may correlate with disease activity. Again, may be more of an absorption issue. The main source is intestinal bacteria, but if you are not absorbing well, or you're on antibiotics, or your diet is relatively poor in sources of vitamin K, then you're gonna be at higher risk for this. The other vitamins, the water-soluble vitamins, you can see listed here, and many of you may not have known that biotin was actually B7, it's not commonly called that, and folic acid is vitamin B9. There's no storage form for these, so constant intake is needed on a relatively daily basis. And probably one of the pearls of taking care of these patients, if you determine that you have one deficiency for a water-soluble vitamin, the odds are you have multiple deficiencies. With thiamine, you can see deficiencies that will end up with things like beriberi. And beriberi can affect the nervous system, whether it affects the heart with wet beriberi or peripheral nerves. And if you think that this is rare, I've got news. On Monday, I have a patient flying up from down here in Florida to see me for what the coder put in as beriberi, B-A-R-R-Y dash B-A-R-R-Y. So I will be seeing how Barry looks like on uh, Monday. And Two weeks ago, I saw a patient with full-blown scurvy. So there are patients that are walking into your clinic, definitely walking into my clinic, with vitamin and mineral deficiencies on a regular basis. And if you take care of any of these patients that have IBD and have had bariatric surgery, they are at highest risk for vitamin mineral deficiencies, not just your patients that uh, are alcoholics or 
are on strange diets, but that population with the bariatric surgeons, if they're not taking their vitamins like they're supposed to, and we know what compliance is like in a number of different areas, um, then you're going to see patients with vitamin deficiencies. Now, this is an interesting paper that I happened on um, that Constantin Pala looked at a group of patients for severe fatigue. They all had normal thiamine levels as well as normal iron studies, TSHs were normal, thyroids were normal. And they treated them with very high dose oral thiamine for this severe fatigue. What sort of dose are we talking about? Your RDA for thiamine is 1.2 milligrams a day. So they've treated this as a weight-based um, idea, and they gave patients that were 60 kilos 600 milligrams a day. And if they were 90 kilos or more, they gave them 1,500 kilos a day. Now, if you go to your local pharmacy, you will only find usually 100 milligram pills. You may have to go to one of my least favorite places on the planet, which would be GNC, where they do have 300 milligram pills and you can take less pills. But a lot of our patients take so many pills already, you may not be able to convince them to give this as a trial. But ask me in two weeks, because I just uh, tried this on one of my ID, IBD patients last week, and he finally found 300 milligram pills, and he's willing to do it. So well, fatigue regression was very good, 10 out of 12, complete fatigue regression. And this is significant for a lot of these patients that do try to go back to work after major surgery. So is this something that you might want to try in some of your patients? I think it's worth a try. Selenium and zinc deficiency. We can see this in significant IBD, lots of diarrhea. We used to see a lot of this in the early days of HIV when patients came in uh, with awful diarrhea. And the majority of these patients were losing 20 milligrams of zinc a day in their stool. And if you have short bowel, you may also be losing significant amounts of zinc or selenium in the stool with either a short bowel or high ostomy output. So those are things that you should be screening for. Complementary medicine, I said up to 50%, probably closer to 80% of patients are doing this. And vitamins and minerals actually fit under this because most of those aren't FDA regulated anyway. But what are the things that we should be asking the patients, or they will be asking us, Doc, should I be doing fish oil? The data is not very good for fish oil per se, but tell them they should be eating their fish. Fiber, probably okay, except if they have flares or if they have strictures. Curcumin, we were joking the other day about uh, eating lots of Thai food. Well, maybe we should be eating more Indian food. But the problem with that is you're not going to get as much curcumin as you really need if you're going to take an excess dose of this. So in one study, it was shown to be additive and re inducing remission, but this was up to three grams a day. And this was in concert with taking mesalamine. And then how about maintaining remission in UC? 
basically a gram twice a day was what was needed to do this. And I told you about the vitamin D in terms of taking uh, higher doses for that and decreasing remission. I would really encourage you to ask your patients what they're doing. They may be asking you what should they be eating, but we should be doing the opposite. We should be saying what are you eating? Because there are lots of patients that are out there very interested in searching the internet and finding all sorts of different diets and finding out what's on the, the cover of the National Enquirer for this week. And new IBD diet will cure your disease. Not sure that that's going to be realistic, but patients come in with reams of paper to trying to figure out what is right for them. Things like exclusive enteral nutrition may be helpful, but may not be the be-all and end-all. Low FODMAP diet may be helpful for some symptoms, but it doesn't deal with any of the inflammation. Specific carbohydrate diet, I think there's going to be a lot more on this. This has been promulgated for probably 20-plus years, if not more, but we're studying, starting to see some uh, studies that are really being done well for this. Paleolithic diet. Fred Flintstone probably didn't have IBD, even though he was eating brontosaurus burgers, right? There wasn't a McDonald's, but brontosaurus. And what about the IBD anti-inflammatory diet? All sorts of things. I have two references on the bottom of the slide that I really encourage any of you that are interested in this area to look at. Uh, Jim Lewis and Brian Brew did a wonderful job of uh, looking at diet as a trigger or therapy in IBD. This is a great, great article. The European Society for Parental and Natural Nutrition also have guidelines for treating IBD in terms of diet, enteral nutrition, as well as parenteral nutrition, and those came out uh, a year ago, and those are worth a, a good look also. So the key points that I'd like to leave with you would be screen and code for malnutrition, especially your inpatients. Take a look at those patients, maybe doing the MUST survey on your inpatients while they're waiting in clinic might be something that is useful for your patient clientele. Maybe if you're in an academic setting, you can, that might be a nice QA project for one of your fellows to do. Beware of vitamin and mineral deficiencies. If you don't test for them, you won't find them. You can't see what you don't look for. Ask your patients about what supplements they're actually taking as well as different complementary medicine techniques that they may be using and if you don't ask, they won't tell. And it behooves all of us to learn about different diets for IBD so we can actually tell our patients what to eat. Thank you. <laughs>